The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Raising Good Humans is sponsored by BetterHelp. Your mental health is a huge part of your family's mental health. Let therapy be your map with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash humans today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash humans. Betterhelp.com slash humans. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Eliza Pressman, and I have written my first book, The Five Principles of Parenting, Your Essential Guide to Raising Good Humans. I want you to pre-order it right now. Any chance you could take a pause and go to Amazon or wherever you like to order books online and pre-order The Five Principles of Parenting, Your Essential Guide to Raising Good Humans. When you pre-order, you get access to exclusive content that's not even in the book. You're going to have access to different live Zooms and conversations, the first one, August 30th with me, and a massive thank you for me because when you pre-order, it really helps booksellers realize how important it is to get this book out in the world and to put it on their shelves. So thank you. I'm so grateful to this community. You know I would not have written a book if I did not feel like I could put into one book everything that really matters in the science and practical tools so that you aren't left to figure this out by yourself. I know it takes a village, and I also know that you are going to have your unique spin on what matters to you, and I'm going to marry that with the science, and we're going to call it all you're going to need. (laughs) So thank you for pre-ordering. And now for today's awesome conversation, I'm bringing you the middle school whisperer, Phyllis Fagel. She's awesome. And she really talks about harnessing middle school superpowers to help kids get through middle school in the ways that will benefit them during these extremely challenging times. Phyllis has an awesome book, Middle School Superpowers, and she also wrote Middle School Matters. So we're diving in right now to harnessing those middle school superpowers. If you enjoy this episode, Don't forget to give it a five-star review and maybe even write a little review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can sign up for my free newsletter, dralizapressman.substack.com. Talk me through starting middle school and framing middle school the way you do. So one of the big myths that I try to debunk about middle school is that it's full of these mean drama seeking kids that it's this phase that you just have to endure and I say this as both a parent and as a school counselor I really truly believe middle school can be a time of immense growth and a time to really develop self-awareness figure out what you need from a friend figure out where you fit and if we message to our kids that it's this awful horrible time we actually predispose them to have a horrible, awful time. And there's plenty of research showing that kids have a gentler experience when we set aside our own anxiety and help them get a little bit excited for the phase. 
So let's go through some of the superpower conversations that you can have with your middle schooler to, to prep them if this is the beginning and to help them if the year before felt a little wobbly. Yes. And I think one of the things we want to do is acknowledge that when they go to middle school, they are going to a whole new world, especially if they're switching schools. Many middle schools bring in kids from lots of elementary feeder schools. Suddenly they go from one homeroom teacher to having maybe as many as seven teachers. Instead of seeing the same 30 kids all day, they might be seeing a hundred different kids all day. And one of the misconceptions parents have is that their kids are going high level. They're worrying about the increased academic demands. They're worried that they won't make any friends. And I'm not going to say they're not worrying about that, but often what they're really worried about are the low-hanging fruit. What if they can't get their locker open? What if they have to go to the bathroom, but they're a little bit lost? What can they do in those situations? So one of the biggest superpowers that we can give them is something I call super agency, which is to figure out what you can do to improve your situation. So if you're lost, you can ask an adult for help or even a classmate for help and just look someone in the eye and say, I'm new here. If you're worried you'll have no one to eat with at lunch, you can make an arrangement with a friend in the summer who has a similar schedule and meet outside the cafeteria. How do you help guide kids if they feel like they're not able to harness some of the social challenges, like some of the superpowers that are like a little confusing with the social structure changing and different friend groups adjusting and readjusting, how do we help those kids navigate those social situations? And then I have a follow-up question. Sure. So one of the superpowers is super belonging. And super belonging to me is the foundational superpower for a middle schooler because their entire life revolves around those social relationships. And so if you're a kid who's got weaker social skills or has some social anxiety, or maybe you were bullied in elementary school, so you're going in with a lot of baggage, or maybe you're the parent who is sending your kid into middle school and you have some baggage from middle school that is creating anxiety for both of you. We know behavior that emotions are contagious. So one of the things I like to do with middle schoolers, and I do this with my clients, I do this with my students, is to front load some of the things they're going to see and experience socially. And one of the first things I tell them is that when you're in middle school, you will get dumped by a friend. Every single one of you is going to get dumped by a friend. And it will feel awful and it will feel personal, but it won't be because this is when you're doing the work of figuring out what you need from a friend, who you are and what you can give to a friend. I even shared the statistics that from the fall to spring of the first year of middle school, only a third of the friendships stay constant. If you ask a middle schooler to name their best friend, only half of the kids they name are going to name them back. And 12% of sixth graders have no one named them as a friend at all. And if you follow kids from seventh grade to 12th grade, only 1% of those friendships are still stable. So it sounds terrible to parents, but it's so reassuring to kids to know they're not alone. It does look like on TV, on social media, in the world, it looks like there's like a cluster of friend groups. You've got to be part of one. And these are going to be the people you move throughout school with. So this myth busting is so wonderful. And then how do we help them find the tools to find the sort of green flag friends? So the first is to be really curious and ask a lot of questions. It would be great if we could just tell our kid, because we can tell in a nanosecond that a friendship is toxic or that they're going to get dropped 
by this group because they don't have a lot in common or that group is much more sophisticated and we would love to bubble wrap them. And unfortunately we can't and they are going to experience discomfort. And the best thing we can do is be really, really patient as this plays out to let them know we believe they can get through it and that we will be there coaching them and helping them along the way, offering a lot of empathy and then asking questions and making observations that might help them come to some of those healthier conclusions faster than they otherwise would. So you might say something like, I can tell that when you're with that particular friend, you try really, really hard to say something funny and I can tell you feel awkward. Is that what you're experiencing? Or I've noticed that when you're with this other friend, you seem so relaxed and you can be your goofy self and you're not really worried about how you're coming off. What's different about that friend versus this one? So with middle schoolers, unfortunately, if we're lecturing them or telling them what to do, all they're going to do is try to prove us wrong. But we can be really good social anthropologists and help them ask the right questions. How do we deal with the different range of readiness for curiosity about romantic life? That was such a long-winded way of saying that, but you get the gist. Yes. And I say this in the book too, but every single year I end up having to have a conversation with my health and wellness students about crush etiquette. That's what I call it, crush etiquette. You know, how many times can you ask somebody if they like you when they don't before you have to move on? Or when is it rude to ask someone (laughs) if they have a crush on someone else? I get a lot of questions like, is it normal to have a crush? Is it normal not to have a crush? Is it normal to have a crush on the same gender? Is it okay if I'm not straight and I like someone who is straight? All of these questions and all of them come down to this basic concern, am I normal? And what I'm constantly trying to do is really strip away this whole concept of normal and reinforce that everyone moves at their own pace. And there's this broad, broad range of normal. And what I tell parents is that every kid wants information. They just don't all feel comfortable receiving it. And so you have to share the information in the way that they can process it. So for one kid, it might be that they will talk to an adult they're comfortable with at school or ask those questions anonymously in a health class. Another one might have a really, really open conversation with you at home. I have one of those kids and one kid who I would need to just leave those books on their desk and hope that they took a look and just really dealing with the audience in front of you. This break is to tell you about Skylight Frames. I love Skylight Frames. Family life, we know, gets so busy because we are in the thick of the busiest time of year. And in back to school season, I am going to tell you about something that will make it easier for you. This is Skylight's new scheduling planner. It's called the Skylight Smart Family Calendar. And if you are a visual person, you will love this new way of visually organizing and color coding. It's so relaxing. All of your family's plans and to do's. It's a smart family calendar, so it upgrades your needs for the school year, and it is something you can actually visually see, and it goes into your phone. So if you are tired of being the gatekeeper to all the family plans, and you feel like you want everyone to know what's going on, the Skylight calendar is just what you need. It syncs all of the different digital calendars and events your family uses and shows them all together in one 
beautiful touchscreen display. And they also have a chore chart, which is just very nice to help organize lists of what each person needs to get done so they can check it off and stick with all the plans and being completely helpful in the household. Now, as a special offer, you can get up to $30 off your purchase of a Skylight calendar when you go to skylightcal.com and enter the code HUMANS. Again, skylightcal.com and enter the code HUMANS. That's S-K-Y-L-I-G-H-T-C-A-L.com, promo code HUMANS. And now I'm going to take a quick break to tell you about my sponsor, Pillsbury. How fun is that? Let me tell you, my kids thought it was a very fun sponsor to have because, of course, I won't sponsor something if I'm not going to use it. And Pillsbury is making a fun, easy, fill, roll, bake crescents as a meal. Pillsbury crescents have delicious ingredients and it kind of transforms the crescents from a side dish to a main dish. When you're just feeling like, hey, everyone, we're making it easy on us tonight. It's going to be delicious. And, you know, why not? It's as easy as fill, roll, and bake. So just enjoy your evening. Make it happen. They have pizza crescent rolls. They have chicken crescent rolls. They have cheese crescent rolls. And you can find Pillsbury in the dairy aisle. You can dinner prep in 30 minutes or less. And that includes cooking time. So these crescent rolls provide dinner recipes that are weeknight recipes for when you just feel like you want to fill, roll, bake, boom, done. You've got dinner. Everybody's happy. It feels a little naughty. Everything's easy and fun. Find more weeknight dinner recipes at pillsbury.com. What about when you start to see them going in a direction that feels like it's past the normal wear and tear of these kinds of transitions and it's actually harmful? Like they're hanging out with people who are too, let's call them sophisticated, <laughs> who are kind of faster than they are. When do you know to step in? versus let them kind of feel their way, fall a bit, and get back up and you're there to support them? If they're in danger, I would always say step in. They're going to need your support. It's similar to the question I often get when it comes to kids' social conflict. When should a parent step in? It's almost never helpful for a parent to text another kid's parent because they were mean to your child, particularly in middle school. You might want to stick daggers in those kids' eyes for hurting your child, <laughs> which I completely understand, but you don't want to be reaching out to their parents for a situation like that if they're on equal footing and they're just having a conflict and maybe something mean was said. However, if there are things going on that rise to a, a deeper level, maybe it's textbook bullying. And textbook bullying is, I use the three Ps, purpose, pattern, power. The person is intending to wound them. This is not a one-off mean comment. It's happening a lot. And then there's this power imbalance, meaning it's several kids against one or older against younger or somebody who's got a lot of social capital and is really popular who's picking on somebody who maybe is weaker in the social skills department. In those situations, you need to help and jump in, talk to the school, get some guidance. 
talk to your kid about how they want you to help them handle it, but they probably do need your support. Similarly, if the kid is making big mistakes, maybe they're getting in trouble for you know, vaping in the bathroom at school, or they did a dumb TikTok challenge and stripped a sink out of the wall, or they're telling you they're somewhere they're not, and they're drinking at some kid's house, and you're worried about their safety. In those situations, it's not about letting it go and letting them make those mistakes. It's about how you have those conversations with your kids. So I have a superpower that's super bounce. And one of the things that I talk about is that every kid in middle school is making mistakes. Hopefully they're not permanent reputation damaging mistakes. Hopefully they're not the kind of mistakes that could you know, lead to real physical harm. And the good news is most of the time they're not, which means it's an opportunity for them to learn. If we shame them, if we impose consequences that have nothing to do with what they've done that make no sense, they're going to shut down. They're not going to learn from it. They'll be paralyzed. So we want to make sure that we are teaching them as much as we are imposing those consequences and that whatever it is that we're doing in response makes sense. So if they are posting late at night or sending requests for nude pictures to a classmate, then a logical consequence in that situation would be to take away their phone, not because you want them to suffer, but because they're clearly not ready to use it and you need to do some more coaching before you give that phone back to them. Let's expand on that for a moment because here's what I'm hearing more than usual. And I'm curious if you hear this. Something's going on with a middle schooler that is very related to their phones, whether it's like you said, requesting or sending pictures, getting themselves into dangerous situations. And they're using, somehow they're using the phone to get there. The parents that are giving consequences that don't make sense is one bucket, like taking the phone no matter what, because that feels like the only thing that the kid cares about. But then there are the parents that are so terrified of taking the phone and setting a boundary around the phone because they know that it's their like lifeline to their friends that no matter what they're doing with the phone and no matter how harmful they are about themselves, the parents feel like, I, I can't take the phone. So when is it the point where they can say, it feels like this phone or this particular app is just, you're just not ready for it. It's just causing these things and we're just going to take a break. Or is that just always going to get more pushback than it's worth? So that's a great question. And I'll share the middle schooler perspective, what kids tell me, which might make it easier for parents to pull back on their kids' phone use. First of all, kids, just like adults, want to have face-to-face contact with their peers. They are online because of FOMO. They don't want to miss out on anything. They want to know what's going on. And they all need more social skills practice right now. And so rather than seeing taking away the phone as this consequence that will lead them to have no friends and be ostracized and feel excluded, really help your kid use that as an opportunity to schedule face-to-face time with friends. Because the more mistakes they're making online, the more indicative it is that they need more practice offline, learning how to read social cues, learning how to interact with peers. You're doing them a long-term favor and even a short-term favor. Okay. So how is that conversation going? 
very similar to the conversation I recommend parents have when it comes to monitoring the phone. And I know there's a wide range of feelings about whether or not middle school parents should monitor their kid's phone. I personally can tell you that if I were to monitor every text and every post that my three kids in middle school combined posted, even one of them probably during one week, I would be living online. It would take that long to go through them. So I'm not suggesting that anyone should be watching everything, but spot checking and explaining to kids that the reason you're spot checking isn't because you're looking to catch them making a mistake. What you're looking to do is get a sense of what images and information they're taking in, because that is going to have an impact on their self-esteem. That's going to have an impact on the information that they're using to make other choices. It's not all good information online. And so very similar to that, if they're making mistakes online, it's hitting the pause button to say, I think we need to stop and take a look at how you're using this and make sure you're using it in a way that serves you. Because if you take that step back and rather than say, you can't handle this, to say something like, I'm guessing this didn't turn out the way you hoped it would turn out, odds are they'll let down their defenses and say, yeah, that kind of went off the rails, at which point you can say, can I help you with this situation? And with middle schoolers, you're going to get so much farther if you actually ask permission to help and make them part of that problem-solving process. You want to be learning together. I like the idea of learning together, particularly because we have to admit we definitely are learning together on this one. There just isn't a precedent. Yes. And we, we make a lot of assumptions. I share a story in Middle School Superpowers about this interaction that really did go off the rails online between a couple of kids. The, they were boyfriend-girlfriend or BFGF. And the BF wanted the GF to send a nude picture. And she kind of remembered that she's not supposed to do that, but she also wanted to send the picture. So she did, she sent a picture in a bikini. And then he sent one back. And because he also, in somewhere in the recesses of his mind, remembered you're not supposed to send a nude, send a picture in boxer shorts. And then, you know what he thought would be really funny is to doctor her picture and give her porn star breasts. And she laughed. She thought it was funny. And so when she thought it was funny, he asked her if he could post it in the group text chain. And she said yes. But when he did, everybody was silent. They didn't get the laugh that they were hoping for. They just were met with silence, at which point the girl was really mad and felt humiliated and thought he should have known better. He then felt really guilty and upset that he had upset her. So he did the only thing he could think to do to make it right. He doctored his own private parts to look like a porn star, at which point some alert parent shut the whole thing down. And the reason I share that story is from our perspective, we might think he was pressuring this girl to send a picture and that she did it grudgingly or that he was trying to humiliate her by sharing it. But if we did came to that conclusion, we'd miss the whole plot line because it was mutual. It was consensual. They were trying to be smart, even though it didn't quite work out. And the other kids, even though they were quiet, they didn't say anything cool. They were pretty good about it too. You know, that's a great illustration of also the assumptions that we make can get us off track because we're just like, that kid is, you know, fill in the blank. And it just, you're not 
you're not leading with curiosity and compassion at that point. It's just messy. Right. Right. And if you go into a situation like that and with an open mind and you say, you know, I'm guessing you thought this might be kind of silly and funny and you just wanted to entertain your friends and I can see you were trying to mitigate the risk, that's so much less accusatory and confrontational and so much more likely to elicit some kind of dialogue. And our ultimate goal is for them to learn so they don't do that again. We want our kids to take risks. We want our kids to feel safe figuring out what is the kind of risk that is growing them and what's the kind of risk that might be harming them. Talk about that superpower and how we can balance those messages. Yes. And I don't want to be all doom and gloom. Most of the time, the kinds of mistakes kids are making are, you know, spilling a secret or turning someone away from a lunch table. It's not these big, huge. Yes, exactly. So I don't want to mischaracterize it. Much of the time you can even see that elementary school kids still in them, in their interactions in middle school. But super daring is the superpower that I think you're referencing. And it's so important in middle school when the stakes are low. It's why I call it the last best chance. They're still impressionable. And they gain confidence by trying new things and experimenting. And they build the resilience by seeing that they can go through something embarrassing or disappointing and come out on the other side just fine. But because they're so self-conscious, because they're so insecure, it's a time when it's excruciatingly hard for them to take what to an adult might seem like a small risk, like inviting that new kid over to your house or even raising your hand in class. And so what we want to be doing with kids is making sure that they are taking comfortable risks. I sometimes call them starter risks, but that if there's something that they want to do, figuring out what that brave goal is and then scaffolding it for them. I might even draw a ladder for a student and have them break it down to the different rungs on the ladder. And after that, we might even add another layer of rungs to that ladder because so often kids feel like for everybody else, it's super easy and they should just give up. But actually it might be that if your goal is to invite a friend over, you first have to start with walking next to them in the hall, but not speaking to them. And then maybe trying to turn to them and ask them an academic question or a question about the homework that's completely related to school. And then from there, ask them if they have seen a certain movie. And from there, ask them if they might want to see a movie sometime. It can take a really long time for them to build up that courage, especially for social risks. Like the idea of just even understanding that It's not just go ask them if you want to be friends with them, invite them over. Like that's a big ask for some kids. For other kids, their personality allows them to ask a new person every hour. But there are kids for whom that is such a great solution. Just thinking of the rungs of the ladder and recognizing. I feel like even just recognizing that just making the effort to walk next to someone can feel really big and challenging. Yes. And I think there's a lot of practical things parents can do to help kids. So that kid who's struggling just to walk next to someone in the hall might be the same kid who thinks that they're part of a conversation simply because they're standing in a scrum of kids. They may actually not realize that you have to contribute something, even if it's just three words. And parents can help by giving them tools to enter a conversation. I will say to a kid, here's what I want you to do. I want you to listen to what they're talking about. And once you know what that conversation topic is, I want you to think about something you can ask them that's related to that topic. Everyone loves questions, especially about themselves. And then when there's a break, ask that question or even teaching a kid how to give a compliment because everyone loves compliments. And 
that's such an underrated skill in middle school, but since everyone's insecure, the ability to praise somebody can get kids pretty far. But I think if you can find, it's just a habit of like hunting for something awesome and it's pretty quick. Like how many times have you interacted with somebody where you just cannot find a thing to compliment? Very rarely. So, it's just yeah. some of us are willing to, to take that risk and some of us maybe feel silly doing it. And so I thought it was like, oh, I, I think that is a good tip for middle schoolers just because I don't know if everybody knows that you're allowed to do that. I don't think it's intuitive. I do compliment circles in classroom settings where everybody puts their name on the top of a paper and they walk around and they give each other. But when I do that activity, I have to first give some caveats. And the first one is to explain what a compliment is. And we talk about how telling someone you really like their water bottle feels different than when someone says you have a great sense of style. And Mm -hmm. we then talk about how if you notice that four or five people have all said you're good at soccer, is it going to be meaningful if you as person number five also say you're good at soccer? So it's it's a deceptively simple skill. It's a very effective skill once you've acquired it, but it does require some training actually to pull it off. That's so helpful and concrete. I love helpful and concrete for everybody that's listening. And now a quick break so I can tell you about my sponsor, Trust and Will. This is one of those topics that I know I never thought about until I had kids. And then you have kids, all these incredible moments of life are coming up. And the other thing that comes up is, well, now you're responsible for a whole other human or multiple humans. And so estate planning, which can traditionally cost thousands of dollars and really be such a headache is something that you kind of have to do, but you can do so in a much easier way from the comfort of your own home, starting at just $159, which seems like a lot until you realize it is actually thousands to try to plan this in another way. So you use this very straightforward website. It gives you peace of mind that your assets and wishes are secure, and you just put it away and know that if heaven forbid anything happens, your children are cared for. So gain peace of mind today with trust and will get 10% off plus free shipping of your estate plan documents by visiting trustandwill.com slash humans. That's 10% off and free shipping at trustandwill.com slash humans. That's trustandwill.com slash humans. So you have other helpful and concrete tips about boundary setting. So I'm just trying to touch on a lot of these topics without, you know, diving deep into them. And then if people have a favorite one, we can always revisit and deep dive. But boundaries are so hard to set as adults, let alone in middle school when you are really hoping to get people's approval and make friends and all that. So you talk a lot about that superpower. Can you just give us some tips? Yeah. So one of the things that's really hard, and I think girls tend to struggle with this more than boys, not to overgeneralize, but these kids want to be really good friends. One of the myths is that they're not mean and drama seeking. They're just learning. In fact, they're incredibly supportive of one another. There's this really deep intimacy among kids in middle school that's actually very admirable. But as a result, they can 
give, give, give to the point of depletion. So you might have a kid who is overwhelmed because they have a friend with a really big problem that they're burdening them with, that they're not equipped to support them on. Or it may just be somebody who wants to talk about, you know, their boyfriend for three hours at night when your kid needs to sleep. And it's really hard for kids in this age group to set boundaries because it feels like they're not being kind, they're not being a good friend. And so it's important that we start teaching them now how to set those boundaries. And some of these tips in this chapter are really practical too. I call it super force field because kids do need that kind of roadmap. So one might be that they set policies. I never check texts or I don't text after a certain time at night. It could be that they have a policy with certain friends that are always incredibly demanding that they wait five hours before they respond. Or maybe anytime someone has an emotional request of them, they wait a few hours because odds are they'll resolve it on their own before you get back to them anyway. And the goal is that we don't want them to get emotionally pulverized. We want them to be establishing reciprocal relationships with their friends. And so that's another place where parents can ask really curious questions. You know, do you feel like you get as much as you give in this friendship, especially if we're noticing that it seems really lopsided? And also talking to our kids about what's an appropriate conversation for you as a middle schooler to be supporting a friend in, and when do you need to bring in adult reinforcement? So I think that the first part of that that you mentioned, kids do feel like it's hard for them to distinguish between I don't want to be mean and just setting an appropriate boundary. So what are some basic ways to tell the difference between being mean and setting a boundary? So I'll I'll give an example that I share in the book. This was a student who had a friend who would want to sleep over. And when she went to her house to sleep over, the she would say, can I sleep over next weekend too? And this girl was overwhelmed that this kid always wanted to sleep over and making it even worse, she would ask the second she walked through the door, can we do this again next weekend? And she felt mean saying no, but she also felt really put off by the request. And so she came to me for support and we talked through it. And again, it's a social risk to say what you're thinking. So we had to really formulate a response that felt kind to her, but also felt direct. And eventually she was able to say, I love having sleepovers with you. It's really, really fun, but I also like to have sleepovers with other people. And that's hard for a 12-year-old to do. Yeah, it really is. But it's such an important skill. And we just see so much with teenagers and adults alike that the skill of being able to set boundaries and still remain kind and compassionate, it's such a path to emotional success. Yes. And I think we need to make sure we ourselves as parents understand what boundaries are. You can't set a boundary for somebody else. There's nothing she can do to make that kid stop asking to sleep over. That kid probably will continue to ask to sleep over every weekend. The boundary is hers to set. No, I have sleepovers with different kids. Right. And so explaining to kids that when you set a boundary, it's not an unsuccessful or successful boundary. If the person respects that boundary, that's their job to figure out. Our job is to set the boundary that feels right to us. And it might be a little bit uncomfortable. And so you just practice and stretch and eventually that muscle gets stronger. Are there any other superpowers? Yes. That I've that you want to ch- just throw in for the prepping <laughs> for middle school? Oh, I, 
You know, the one, the last superpower in the book, I think is one of the most important as well. And it's super optimism and it's the power to stay, you know, find hope and humor in the hard times. And I think for middle schoolers who are so relentlessly self-critical, so prone to catastrophizing, have such a hard time seeing nuance, tend to discount the positive, have a hard time interpreting feedback, use really extreme words like they hate me, this I'll never be good at math, things like that. Really teaching them how to view a problem or a challenge as an obstacle to be overcome, as something that's temporary and situational, as opposed to something that's going to defeat them, you know, and leave them in a puddle on the floor, I think is such a bona fide superpower. If you've got a chronic sort of pessimist at that age, just it's like the, they're all the things that you just said, this is a forever moment. Everything feels sort of like a global, this sucks. What are some tips and tricks for growing that muscle a little bit into the, not optimism, like not a realistic appraisal? Because I think that that doesn't make anybody feel good to say that their entire idea is completely discounted and that everything is bunnies and roses. But what are some of the things that we can do in the water in the household to kind of shift that language while still remaining empathetic to the feeling that they're having? I like, again, and I feel like this is a recurrent theme in this conversation, but to go back to curiosity, I agree with you that you have to start with validation. You know, I also would feel pretty upset if I thought my teacher was trying to humiliate me, or I would be pretty bummed out if I thought my friends were all hanging out without me, or if I thought that they were excluding me because they want to talk about me all evening. I call it Eeyore syndrome when kids are relentlessly negative and it can be draining and exhausting for the adults in their life. So one of my favorite uh, exercises to do with kids who are like that is to ask them, and I always preface this by saying you do not have to believe what you come up with, but I ask them to come up with three other more benign possibilities for why whatever it is that sounds doom and gloom would happen instead. And it's really hard, especially for the diehard pessimists to do this. And I'll give an example because I think it it's it works better in practice. So a kid came to me and it was similar to that scenario I just gave. He felt like his friends all were, they were not only getting together on a Friday night without him, nobody had texted him, nobody had told him about it, but they were probably doing it because they wanted to talk about him and you know, plot how they were going to wreck his life and make him feel terrible, which as adults we know is really extreme, but he very much believed it. And so again, I started by saying, I would feel pretty bad too if I thought that. I said, but tell me some other possibilities. And I gave him a piece of paper and a pen because I knew he wasn't going to be able to verbalize it. It was just too at odds with his temperament. And eventually he wrote down one. And the one he wrote down was, well, they're all on the baseball team together. So maybe they just got together after practice and it just kind of happened. And it wasn't that they were excluding me. It's just that they were already together. They maybe weren't thinking about me at all. And he looked up and he goes, I I think that's what happened. He didn't even get to two and three. So what I explained to parents is that I don't need them to believe the alternative reason. I am not trying to talk them out of whatever it is that's causing them distress. I'm trying to teach them how to think more flexibly so that the next time they're in a similar situation, they have a skill they can lean on to maybe 
help themselves suffer a little bit less. Middle schoolers are going to get themselves into situations that are just against everything that we talk to them about and even might feel like they're against their own values and belief systems, but they're in a bind. How do we teach middle schoolers how to know when to ask for help and how to go about doing it? One of the most powerful things a parent can do is to very explicitly talk to their child about the types of situations in which you need to ask for help. In the school setting, I would actually define anxiety and depression because so many middle schoolers cannot tell the difference between the normal mood fluctuations of puberty and darker emotions or more upsetting situations where they need that support. So explaining to them when they would need to ask for help, explaining who they should ask for help. One of the other non-intuitive pieces of information middle schoolers need is that when you have a big problem, you need to talk to an adult and not a similarly impaired seventh grader who's not equipped to help you and probably is dealing with their own stuff. And then the third piece of this is to have this conversation about who they'd go to for help and be pretty clear that it doesn't have to be you. You want to just make sure they have someone in mind, but you want to also be helping them come up with those names when they're not in crisis. And if they say, what's going to happen if that does come up? What's your answer? When kids don't ask for help, most of the time it's because they're afraid they will get an overreaction mm -hmm. or there will be a consequence that's unpleasant for them. And the answer to that question really starts earlier. When they make a mistake that is a more minor mistake, make sure that you are not overreacting because if you give them a huge reaction and you're shocked and clearly dismayed and disappointed in them and you take away their phone and they can never see their friends again, whatever it might be, odds are when they have those big problems, they're not going to come to you. So you want to make sure that you're able to process their mistakes with somebody else first if you think you can't stay calm when you're having these conversations with them. They will be less likely to learn. It will be less in service of your end goal if you can't stay calm and rational and empathetic and give them a runway back to being a good kid. And that doesn't mean there are no consequences, but it is all in the way you have that interaction. Please note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.